Welcome to the Business Sense with Brad podcast, where we talk about trends that impact businesses and nonprofit corporations. For more information, go to businesssensewithbrad.com. At a time where labor participation is at an all-time low, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, don't you need a resource that will help you motivate your workers, or perhaps even yourself? Check out the Motivated Worker book, written by yours truly, Brad Ward. It's available at Amazon, Bookshop, or McFarland. This book is double-blind peer-reviewed, but yet written in a clear and concise way, so you can make your workforce happier and more engaged today. So on the, today's podcast episode, we're going to be talking about Johnson City and the growth of the city in business. So here's just a few statistics I found. Johnson City is the third hottest housing market, according to the Wall Street Journal. There's a lot that goes into that. So there's um, that doesn't necessarily mean houses that are selling, but part of their formula includes small business growth. Johnson City just topped 70,000 people. There are some that think it'll hit 100,000 within a decade. There were slightly increasing home prices until 2020, where they're incrementally going higher, and now they're starting to exponentially grow. Now, who knows if that exponential will level off or not, but it's starting to curve. Uh, and then also in 2021, Johnson City Kingsport was ranked 12th in the U.S. for U-Haul's top U.S. growth cities list. So who better to talk about growth as far as business, uh, real estate, and so on than my guest today, Joe Wise. And Joe is the mayor of Johnson City and also runs his own business. So welcome aboard, Joe. Well, glad to be here. All right. Well, before we dive in here, how about you give me a little bit about your background? So, for example, how long have you lived in Johnson City? And then tell us about your business. Yeah, I've lived most of my adult life in Johnson City. I had a brief stint after college where uh, my local employment here uh, required me to transfer to Canada. And so I spent five years in Canada, but, but the balance of my adult life has been in Johnson City. The business that we run is a community association management business. What that means is we serve condominium and homeowners associations. Uh, we essentially provide all the facility, financial, and, and administrative services required for larger scale common interest communities. And so we have uh, an office in Johnson City. We also have an office in Knoxville and then surface a market area in Sevier County around Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge and, and Sevierville. All right, so do you help like figure out like what HOA fees are gonna be or how the that legally works? Is that kind of how the business works then? So we serve the boards of these respective associations and, and, and that can be everything from helping them to establish preliminary budgets for their consideration and approval to the communications about meetings, conduct of meetings, the, the, the day in and day out management plans, the, the recurring board meetings, the collection of fees, the payment of bills, the transfer of ownerships. In a way, we're, if you think of a homeowners association as being kind of the most localized form of government where people are working together, um, we're sort of like a little city government for hire. So if you're a small HOA of say three to 500 or even a thousand homes, you don't have a staff, but you have a lot you need to do and it needs to happen in a pretty reliable way and very consistent or you're gonna run afoul of certain legal requirements you may have. 
And so you can engage our service to come alongside the board as essentially their partner in all those realms, financial facilities and governance. And so that's what we do on a day-to-day basis. Before we get too much into the politics, and by the way, you're one of my favorite kind of politicians, ones that let's done business and know how your decisions will affect the business community. Um, how does that running your own HOA business, how does that actually inform your decisions as a uh, mayor or council person? I think particularly being in the business we're in, there are a lot of parallel issues and opportunities and, and occurrences between the realm of a homeowners association and the role of a municipality. And so um, even just this morning, I was in a meeting where we were talking about subdivision regulations and our local zoning code, and it was very much informed by my experience with client communities and how if, if you don't have sufficient uh, right-of-way, if the road isn't wide enough, you can end up with some significant parking challenges. If the homes don't have sufficient driveways for people to put their cars, you push those cars out onto the street. And if the street isn't wide enough, you can have access issues. And And that's a huge problem where we're at versus other areas of the country with the narrow roads. And and so so we establish um, standards and those standards are really intended to take into consideration a whole range of issues, not just the maintenance of the road, but also to take into account, can you get a fire truck in there? Can you get a fire truck out of there? Can you get a school bus in there? Can you get the school bus out of there? And then are is there sufficient space for the cars of the people who will live and visit those homes? So that's, that's one way in which my specific business experience has probably informed at least one small set of questions that, that the, the, the city gets called upon to answer. I think more broadly, you, you also have to recognize all the different ways in which you interact with businesses. Um, so you take a city like Johnson City that's effectively a full service city. We're, we're involved in water and sewer and public transportation and fire and police and uh, schools and across a whole range of, of interests. If you're a business in our community, you're gonna interact with us in a whole lot of ways. You may wanna sell to our schools. You may need water from our water department. You may need uh, transit to get your employees to and from work. And the kinds of decisions that we make can have positive or negative implications for you as a, a business person. All right. Yeah. So before we dive too much further into the business realm, just tell us more about how did you actually get involved in politics and then leading up to mayor? What kind of offices have you run for and won and how did you end up becoming mayor? So my interest, I guess, was initially peaked as a young person growing up. My friend's mother, my classmate and friend's mother was our mayor. Uh, She served on our city council. Um, Our next door neighbor happened to be the, the city manager and friends of my parents, uh, he he was the fire chief. And so I saw firsthand what local government looked like because it was just regular people. It was the people in the neighborhood. It was the people at church. It was people at PTA meetings. And so I think that initially brought to me a perspective that when you get down to this very local level, It is regular people. It's the people you run into at Kroger. It's the people you do business with. 
There's certainly examples around the country of where local government has fallen short. Um, and you can see that when all of a sudden people don't have confidence in the safety of the water supply, or when um, people don't have confidence in the structural integrity of infrastructure. And so for me, it was about ensuring that the community was a place that people could live and grow and thrive and succeed. And to do that required people to be involved. And so I got involved and my, my initial involvement locally, um, beyond things like civic clubs, I was a part of the Kiwanis and uh, those sorts of things. But, but my first really foray into public service was an appointed uh, position on our city's planning commission. The planning commission is the group that looks at subdivisions and zoning and annexations and all those sorts of topics. And so I was appointed to that board served for a year or two and then ended up the chairman of the planning commission and while serving in the planning commission role began to see opportunities to perhaps do a little bit more and ran initially to serve on our county commission which i did until i was elected to the city commission and i've been elected to the city commission twice now so i've run a total of three times um, uh, once for the county commission and twice to the city commission in Johnson City, we have what is a weak mayor form of government. And what that means is that the mayor is not functioning as the chief executive officer of sorts for the city. We, with the board of commissioners, have one employee. That employee is our city manager. And she is the chief executive officer. She's the one to whom the 21 department heads are ultimately accountable. She's the one who develops the initial budget that's brought to the city commission for consideration and adoption. Much of what goes on in the day-to-day -day life of the city is happening within the realm of staff. So would you be then, I guess if we're going to use an analogy, like the chairman of the board and the city mayor is the president of the town, if you will, is that, I don't know if that's a good analogy or not. Probably the, the best way to, I mean, the, the truth is the mayor is the chair of the city commission and the the title of mayor is an honorary title or more of a ceremonial role and so um, you know certainly when the city issues bonds it's the mayor's signature that goes on them when the city um, adopts resolutions and ordinances and codes um, it's the city's mayor that signs them but you know really the chairman of the board and then there's a there's a ceo that runs the day-to-day all right. Now, I'd imagine with this uh, last election cycle, uh, it was probably more interesting than others. Now, at least at the national level. And I didn't know if any of that trickled into the local level. So, again, we had COVID going on, of course. And then we also had voter fraud allegations across the country um, and everything from voting machines to, you know, ballot harvesting and all these other things. So I just wanted to know, though, the local level, did any of that impact uh, when you were running or anything like misinformation wise that you had to deal with or did it just run at the local level like a traditional election? What I think is probably more uh, interesting from the perspective of our local experience has been the the change in our charter. So uh, roughly eight years ago, the citizens voted on a couple of charter amendments that changed essentially the, the constitution of the city. 
And so it used to be that city elections were held in April of odd number of years. And the only thing that was on the ballot was city commission and city school board. And the charter amendment that was adopted about eight years ago moved our elections to coincide with the even year November elections. And so the city commission elections went from being in this obscure sleeper election with very low turnout to being in a big national November election. And so Tennessee's had some pretty hot national elections in 2016, 2018, and 2020 because we had competitive Senate seats or we had presidential elections that were driving high degree of turnout. And so the, the impact of that was that a lot of people were coming to vote in, in these recent elections who, who knew who they were going to vote for for president or for Congress or for the Senate but didn't even know their ballot was gonna have a page three. And so they got to page three and they had all these names that they didn't know for offices maybe they weren't all that familiar with. So that's probably the bigger change that we experienced locally. I, I think for most people, um, campaigning in that environment is different because there's just so much other noise. You know, you're trying to get their attention for your campaign to be city school board member or city commissioner and, and you're having to try to capture the attention of a voter who's also being courted with tens of millions of dollars in TV buys, it's just a little different environment to campaign in. Well, and I even noticed for the, the last primary, uh, trying to find candidates either a website or if you're not watching local TV, which most of us aren't, mm -hmm. um, it's hard to even know who the candidates are at the local level or what they stand for. I mean, it's hard to know what any of the candidates stand for, if you will, totally. Um, but like at the local level, it was really challenging to figure out, wait, what are this person's policies even? Mm -hmm. And I think we, we have been fortunate as a community that several different nonpartisan entities have made it a priority to have candidate forums. And of course, the last time I ran, we were still in the middle of a pandemic, uh, you know, very, very much actively in the middle of it. And so that restricted, you know, you didn't have forums and events that necessarily encouraged people to come out and meet candidates. But we still had think, groups like the Chamber and the University and the League of Women Voters and uh, the newspaper and WJHL, different ones doing candidate forums that were made available either by way of television or by way of online streaming. And I think that helped. So you could find that information if you knew where to look. And I think some of the local media did make a helpful effort to prioritize doing that. But I think to your point, you know, you really had to seek it out. All right, so let's transition into business. And I wanna talk briefly about real estate because I was just in the market for a house. And what was happening is homes were selling the same day from someone from California, or uh, our house actually sold to someone from Arizona. But we would the house would sell the same day for cash and local, you know, local us, if you will, we're trying to go up against those kind of offers. And it was really brutal this summer on the especially for locals, for out of staters. It, it was great. But again, the competition was crazy. And of course, like the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates or they did to try to slow things down. But it doesn't seem like this area doesn't want to fully cool off like other areas. And again, I don't have a ton of data to back this up, but it still seems, it seems like it's slowed a little bit, but it's still hot. So is there, I guess, from the business side or even people moving here, have you seen an impact on like the types, like other different kinds of businesses moving here or why are people moving here in general? Well, I think you've seen in the 
era of the pandemic and the way technology has supported remote work that certain sorts of jobs no longer are tied geographically to one city or another. And so what we've seen is it's, it's freed up a segment of the workforce, not the whole workforce, but a very privileged segment of the workforce who can kind of pick up their laptop and go wherever they want to go. And they can still make a living, in fact, make a very good living and potentially make, bring that California wage to the Tennessee real estate market. And, and they're winning on two fronts. I am concerned about the implication of these very quick sale um, cash offers for the reasons you described in that not only does it have the potential of running up values faster than the actual market can sustain, the actual local market, obviously the market's sustaining it because it's still happening, because we wanna make sure that housing is affordable. Why is it happening? It's happening because as a community, we made an investment in 10 gig internet. It's happening because as a community, we've made a priority to keep property taxes comparatively low. Um, it's happening because we're in a, in a beautiful region of the country where you can get four seasons and you don't feel stacked in on top of each other. So it's desirable from that standpoint. You wanna commute 45 minutes both ways going to and from work every day, or do you wanna be anywhere and everywhere you wanna be in 10 minutes? Uh, you know? So if you have that choice, it's little wonder that people are choosing Johnson City the challenge is making sure that our infrastructure and housing and all those things that are required to support a community effectively are keeping pace with that growth. And so we've used the term smart growth. Uh, one, of the, one of the priorities that has been identified in the current year's budget is a, a comprehensive growth plan to ensure that we don't get so far ahead of ourselves in the growth that we that we lose control over the choices that are being made. Well, and I was just thinking tax wise, um, if somebody's working here, but they their actual employers in California, a certain part of that tax, uh, tax, whether it's the, I don't know, payroll tax, or I'm just trying to think through some of the taxes. I don't know if it would hurt revenue for the government here if they were really like, wouldn't. We don't have a state income tax. And so the way our taxes are collected locally are predominantly either in the form of property taxes and sales taxes. And so if you bring more people or more housing or more spending, as a general rule, our revenue will tend to trend that way. And so even when you think about inflation, because we are so dependent on sales tax, as inflation trends up, as long as people are buying, uh, our revenues will tend to maybe not keep pace with inflation, but at least be working in an upward clip so our revenue isn't flat while prices are going up. The, the other thing that has helped us weather those, let's call them threats relative to revenue, is uh, the fact that the state of Tennessee had gotten issues around sales tax from internet sales sorted out because uh, when, when 2020 hit and the pandemic and people stopped going to stores and malls and started going to, to the online retailers, uh, we, we were in a position that that revenue didn't cannibalize our revenue. We were collecting sales tax on all those forms of sale. 
had, had the pandemic hit five years earlier and you'd had that internet sales without the internet sales tax component figured out, it could have been disastrous for local government revenues, could have been just a crisis. Well, yeah, and I, I was thinking too, the benefit, so if, we're, if someone's working remote versus let's say old school manufacturing facility where they're hiring at people locally, is that a problem having too much remote work versus, because a lot of those jobs aren't actually hiring local people per se, you're still getting taxed like you were saying from the sales, but do we need more types of jobs that are employing people directly? And one of the reasons I mentioned this is uh, I go to Founders Forge meetings once in a while and they're, uh, they're like a local entrepreneur. They help startup companies, but most of the startups, and again, not uh, complaining, I, you know, I love uh, Founders Forge, but most of them are app developers, which is fine. But then, of course, most of the app developers are single person solopreneurs, which is, again, that's fine. But I would almost say we'd almost need more diversity when we're talking about the types of jobs. Am I wrong or is there I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think when you look at economic development as it relates to, to job creation and job retention, you are really looking at not either or, but really both and. And so. Um, whether it's a small business, I think you called solopreneur, or whether it's a large scale traditional manufacturer who might come in and hire a couple hundred people, we really need them both. Um, we need them both because we need to create an environment in which everybody's skills and talents and aptitudes have the fullest opportunity to reach their individual greatest potential. And so, um, you know, we, we've, we've certainly been happy to see some remote work come into our area because of the investment we've made in 10 gig internet. That does not mean we are not still actively looking to recruit and retain more traditional businesses and industries. The other thing to think about when you're thinking about economic development and, and employment recruitment is workforce development. And so one of the one of the very real concerns that we have surrounding the recruitment of additional business and industry isn't just the recruitment of the business and industry. It's ensuring that we have a pipeline of ready, able and willing people to become a part of their eventual workforce. And so when we talk to businesses and industry that are looking at moving here, some things that cause them concerns are. The, the high rates of drug use in certain populations, the, the poor overall health indexes in, in parts of our population, the lower than average educational attainment. And so another part of our economic development as a, as a city and as a, as a state is focused on in investing in education, particularly career and technical education, uh, making an investment in overall health and wellness of our population, because those things are major drivers of economic development. All right. And I mentioned Founders Forge. And uh, one of the reasons I like them so much is uh, I think each year a different business houses them like Action VFX and then now Enterra. But are there any other local organizations that are helping inform your policy or that are keeping you up to date on what's happening uh, with businesses coming to the area? Absolutely. The city is the city has a number of relationships that are either partnership or, or uh, collaborative um, with respect to economic development. We're a part of the Northeast Tennessee Regional Economic Partnership. Uh, we've been supportive of 
SyncSpace and Founders Forge and a number of these different initiatives that are either looking at, at large business recruitment or uh, the local economic drive toward you know creating entrepreneurial ecosystems. And so whether that be from those individual entrepreneurs or the networks that they're a part of, or even the college and university faculty and others that end up interacting with those groups, um, we're very much tied into what's happening in those areas and supportive of it. One of the exciting things we're working on right now, we were able to secure a $5 million grant from the state of Tennessee from Governor Lee's budget to renovate the historic Ash Street Courthouse, which is in the heart of the Walnut Street District. We are in the middle of uh, investing about $30 million in public money in the public right-of-way. Uh, local industry has just spent a tremendous amount of money renovating the old model mill, and it's now really a class A uh, jewel in the middle of that corridor. And we're using this $5 million grant from Governor Lee to renovate the Astreet Courthouse, its purpose being to foster economic development, entrepreneurial efforts targeted not at the city of Johnson City, but really the entire region. The idea being that that facility could become a place where any number of these different organizations might come together uh, to present in response to a city request for proposal, a model for using that facility to help uh, local students, local businesses, if they've got an idea, help them take an idea and actually translate it into action. Uh, using, for example, Purdue as an example. We look at ETSU and here we have this, this university of 15 or 20,000 people. You look at King and Milligan and others that are putting out healthcare professionals and engineers and business leaders. They have innovative ideas. We would like to help them figure out how to take their innovative idea and translate it into a viable, scalable business. And so we see this as a way we can help spur that happening in Johnson City. And for those of you that, because we have listeners from not around here, so could you tell us more about the Walnut Corridor and why it needs renovating so for someone that doesn't under, know the area? So, so traditionally, uh, Johnson City was a railroad town and we were located where we are because it was where trains needed to stop to get water it's, and they were extracting resources from the mountains, whether it was brick or whether it was timber. And that was how Johnson City came to be. We started as Johnson's Depot. West Walnut Street was an area to the west of downtown that historically was the road that ran from Johnson City to Jonesboro, the county seat. And in the stretch of West Walnut Street that we're talking about, its original use 100 years ago was industrial. You would have found some foundries and other kinds of industrial facilities in that area. Well, as the railroad began to change and as the community began to grow, the traffic that used to rely on West Walnut Street moved to a newer, larger scale road. And West Walnut Street became this sort of underutilized road through old industrial property. But here's the thing, it was old industrial property immediately adjacent to downtown and East Tennessee State University. And so it's a quarter of a couple of miles 
that basically links the university to downtown. And we basically had cavernous old industrial facilities and Quonset type buildings through much of it. Basically needs an extreme makeover is what it, you're saying. It needed an extreme makeover because how it was did not reflect its highest and best use. And so what came of the West Walnut Street project was a recognition that we needed to reimagine how that space was used and in order to do that, we needed to change zoning code. We needed to make an, inv an investment in the right of way, maybe bury the utilities, maybe bring more current utilities into the area in an effort to create something that reflects a higher and better use. All right, to close us out, Joe, so obviously uh, Johnson City is a appealing area for entrepreneurs and families to move to or retirees, I guess, too. Um, but what kinds of problems, like what are the most pressing problems you see in the next five to 10 years? I'm, I'm assuming infrastructure is going to be one of these issues because like, like just like the Walnut Corridor, a lot of the streets are pretty, I hate to say old, but like the way that they are made are like very curvy, very narrow. And so if people keep moving here, there's the infrastructure, the way that it was built, you can't just, you know, wave a wand and change all of this. Well, um, there, there are mountains in the way. Um, yes, and mountains. Yeah. Yes. And so, um, well, we have dynamite, so we yeah, can make that. That's still, that's still very costly. I, I think probably the things that reflect the biggest challenges are also the things that reflect the greatest opportunities. Um, what I would say is when you look at all of these different factors, you know, uh, the, the population growth, the growth just in the university, the fact that this is a regional healthcare center with uh, the medical school and the pharmacy school and all of those kinds of things that naturally drive and attract people to an area. We're going to have this strength of dynamic growth and we're going to have the threat associated with dynamic growth. And you hit on part of it, and that's infrastructure. But there are also other elements of it. Um, you, you know, infrastructure is part of it. You got to think in terms of traffic. You got to think in terms of traffic flow. You, you need to think about available school space. You know, we're probably within a few hundred students of being at a point where Science Hill is beyond its capacity. And so then you're left having to think through, are you adding more facilities on the existing campus? Uh, are you trying to find a new way to, to address student needs? So I think what you're going to find is a range of questions about housing, infrastructure, specifically schools, and making sure that this growth occurs in a way that it does not diminish quality of life for the people who are already here or diminish quality of life for all the people who will be here then. And so that's the that's the really big question that we're thinking about and looking at in an effort to be proactive in getting ahead of it. You can look around the country and see communities that had this rapid surge of growth. And if they weren't pretty deliberate in getting ahead of those challenges, those challenges got ahead of them. And we don't want that to be part of our story in Johnson City. Now, on the positive note, uh, had a business consultant years ago tell me there were very few problems in business that could not be solved by increasing revenue. And um, I think there is some truth to that, that as you as you look at this kind of growth and you look at the, the sorts of uh, increased revenue that is generally going to follow it, that gives us the ability to make those investment in facilities and infrastructure and so forth. 
And really, Johnson City has a long-standing tradition of being pretty proactive with respect to how infrastructure develops. If you look at how the state of Franklin developed, if you look at how People Street developed and how we tend not to put high traffic uses on main arterial roads, you know, in, in the last three, gen- three decades, we've tried to get the quick turns in and out parking lots to not be on roads that are carrying lots of cars fast. And so I think we'll just continue that. But it will require that the people who serve in the commission now and the people who serve in those roles into the future uh, aren't asleep at the wheel. We need to be paying attention because whether we like it or not, people are coming, things are changing, and we need to be ready. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking about uh, Johnson City's population and business growth, Joe, and uh, appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. That concludes our episode, and if you'd like a non-financial way to really help the podcast move forward, I ask that you subscribe both to the YouTube channel, Business Sense with Brad, and on there I promote the short versions of these episodes, and then also subscribe on your favorite podcast app.